This is Circulating Ideas. I'm Steve Thomas. My guests today are John Huber and Stephen V. Potter, the authors of The Purpose-Based Library, Finding Your Path to Survival, Success, and Growth. John is an author, lean library consultant, and international speaker. Stephen is the CEO and library director of Mid-Continent Public Library. We had so much to say that our conversation spanned two episodes. This is part two. Circulating Ideas is brought to you with support from Metrics and from listeners like you. With library budgets constantly shrinking, it's getting harder and harder to provide the resources your library patrons want and need. That's why the folks at Metrics Test Preparation created the Metrics e-library. Through their e-library portal, Metrics offers study guides and practice questions for over 1,800 different exams covering college entrance, graduate school, nursing, medical, teacher certification, civil service, I'm counting this on my fingers, I'm running out of fingers, and many other careers and fields of study. All fully customizable and at a fraction of the cost of printed books. It's like having an entire library of test prep materials all at your fingertips. So, save space, save paper, and save money with Mometrics eLibrary. To get a free demo and 10% off your first purchase, visit goelibrary.com and let them know you came from Circulating Ideas by using the promo code PODCAST. That's goelibrary.com, promo code PODCAST. I wanted to talk about the concept that you introduced in the book of uh, Huber's Hierarchy of Community Needs. Uh, John, do you want to talk about that? Sure. Yeah, The uh, while we were writing this book, um, one we came to the realization that libraries obviously are more than just warehouses and book distributors. And if we only focus on that, uh, the future of libraries is untenable. And so we wanted to go a little further than that and say, well, what is the true purpose of libraries? And it led to you know, the Seek, Engage, Transform, basically transforming communities. And that's, if you look at if you look at the mission statements of libraries across country, within them there is that C that says we're here to transform communities. They don't necessarily say we're here to get books into people's hands and be a, a warehouser. So, my dilemma, our dilemma was when we were writing the book was, well, wait a minute though, if, if the true purpose of libraries is to transform communities, how do you know you're successful? How do libraries know that they're being successful in transforming communities? And one of the one of the principles of lean is that if you don't measure it, it must not be important. Uh, and without true metrics, you really can't gauge your progress. So it, that problem was front and center, and 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 I I felt if we didn't solve this problem, then the, then we would we won't be writing a book. Because there's no there's no purpose to it because there is no answer. If you continue on transforming communities but you have no feedback or no knowledge of whether you're making a difference or not, then what's the point? So it it became very obvious to us, and we started doing some research that there really was no one has gone out there and actually defined a healthy community. You might find pieces of definitions of you know what what's a healthy community, what's a literate community, and so forth. But in terms of its overall health and well-being, there really was no definition. So that led me, I was inspired, um, I was looking for solutions, and I was inspired by what I learned in college, which is the 
Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which I think probably all your listeners are familiar with, in which uh, you have to you have to satisfy your basic needs of security and hunger before you can move on to uh, your social needs of engaging with, with other people, which is our human nature, and, and then finally to to uh, the higher level needs of self-actualization of more in, internal growth, if you will. And so I said, well, that's curious. And Maslow can talk about a self-actualized person, a healthy individual, if you will, both mentally and physically. Can we do the same thing for a community? And the answer was yes, and that's what led to the pyramid, uh, which is a, a series of steps, basically, just like Maslow's, that you can define uh, where a, a community is on that pyramid. Um, and the pyramid is, is, I think your next question will be, what is the pyramid? Well, it, it begins with the food and shelter safety net at the bottom, which is for those who fall off the pyramid. And of course, that's the homeless. And then the next step is safety and security. Uh, if you go, if you are, if you live in a neighborhood in which you hear gunshots at night, or you're scared to have your children walk to school by themselves, then the chances of your community advancing any higher on the pyramid is, is probably um, slim to none. And then the next level, if, assuming you have a safe and secure neighbor, or neighborhood or community, and you move on to the next level, which is health and nutrition. Uh, if, you, if, if you have a, a community that's, that has a lot of diabetic issues, if you will, uh, which, which happens to be a very high percentage in the poor communities, then all of your resources, time, money, go to taking care of yourself or taking care of your neighbor or taking care of each other. And so all those resources are consumed at that level of health and nutrition if, you're, if you don't have a healthy community. If you do have a healthy community, you can, you can focus on the next level, which is where libraries live, functional literacy and access, uh, having high literacy rates. Uh, if, you, if you obviously can't read, then it's very difficult to, to participate in society. And, and, it, and it's amazing to me when I heard statistics when we did the research, like 14% of the adult population is illiterate, uh, which surprised me greatly. Then once you get functional literacy, then you move to the next level of digital literacy. And what I love about this step is I always ask in my workshops with the libraries, is, is did, did, has digital literacy become just as important as functional literacy? And the answer is always unanimously, absolutely yes, that if you can't work a computer, get on the internet, then you're, you're, you're going to be left out of being able to participate in, in the community. Um, I, I think, Steve, what government forums are all now online. If you don't know, if you don't know how to get online and apply for your Social Security, for example, then, then you're, you have difficulty engaging the community. And then if all those levels are taken care of, then you get into the, into the environment of community engagement, that you have your safe, secure, healthy, read, digital literacy. So now you can engage in a community either online or physically or in, in place, uh, uh, and you have the skills to become part of the community. And then once you, you become part of the community, then you start developing your own functional skills uh, on being able to actually have a, a, a skill you can offer to the community, which leads to the next level of community contribution, which is jobs, volunteering, taxes, so forth and so on. And then you rise to the highest level. If, you've, if, you've, if your community has achieved all of those levels, then you get to the highest level, which is creative expression, uh, that you have the time and the money and resources to invest in creative expression. Austin 
Texas is a good example to me of a, of a, of a community that is fairly healthy because so much, much of their resources and time go into the creative expression. And then the next level is advancement of knowledge. And this, this is not necessarily the advancement of knowledge of an individual. It's the advancement of knowledge of the community as a whole, is that we're all learning what works and doesn't work and making our community healthy, what makes it thrive. And uh, all of the information we just talked about through these levels of pyramid can lead to that advancement of knowledge if, we're, if we have the metrics to, to gauge it. And then the top of the pyramid, of course, is philanthropy, which is uh, giving back once you're at a, if you're at a level where you have a great deal of philanthropy through we volunteer, uh, you know, people volunteering or giving their money back and the resources back to the community, uh, then obviously you have a very healthy community. So that, that's what the Hebrews Community Hierarchy Means Pyramid is. Yeah, and you, and you brought up um, the importance of collecting data and collecting metrics, and you talk about dashboard metrics in the book. Can you talk about what that specifically is and why that's important? Yeah, the um, dashboard metrics, it comes from the manufacturing lean concept. And the, the idea is that when you're driving along, at least in the older cars, <laughs> now they're all electronics, so you may not know, but you could quickly look down at your dashboard and you know whether your car is functioning properly. You know, do I have enough gas? Is the is the temperature right? Is my oil gauge right? Uh, uh, so a quick glance, and you know that everything's working right. And if something's wrong, then it's obvious with a quick glance. And so the idea of dashboard metrics in manufacturing is that you would have certain metrics in place, visible to the to to the working to the the, the, uh, the workers and the, the the staff and the management and so forth, so that if something's out of gauge, then you can respond to it quickly and fix it. Um, the Japanese, in fact, on their assembly lines, have a each worker has a, a has a, a means to know whether everything's working. And if it's not working, they can pull a cord that stops the entire assembly line, which is a big deal. I mean, alarm goes off and everybody comes around and says, "What's wrong?" And they fix it right then and there for the, you know, fix the quality issue, so that it doesn't come back. So, what we wanted to do, what Steve and I discussed was, well, if we have this pyramid, and these are the levels, uh, it's not good enough just to have the levels. As I said before, if you don't measure it, then, then it must not be important, and we can't track our progress. So we wanted to create dashboard metrics for every single level of the pyramid, and, and that's what we did. And Steve, um, a little bit later in the book, you talk about the customer-centered transaction model. Can you talk about, and, and how you've implemented it at your library, can you talk about that concept? Sure, um, I can. Um, we one of the things that that we believed is that as and you know, it's going back to the issue about ownership of the of the workplace and all of that for for the individual people who are actually doing the work. One of the things that we discovered is that that mo most of our people, by people I mean our customers, the people who use our libraries. Um, are in competition or you know there are other people in competition for our customers and John kind of mentioned that I mean talking about Google and Amazon and and, and groups like that um, but one of the things one of, one thing that's really subtle and from my perspective that that I strongly believe is that it's not necessarily that they're we're in uh, that they're in um, competition for our customers in terms of dollars it, it's not that it's not that we're it, it's not like it's a Macy's and Gimbel's. It's not a McDonald's versus Burger King sort of thing. That that when you really boil it down, and you're dealing with libraries, sometimes where where you're really most the thing that you're most competing for is um, is time. 
is your customer's time and your customer's convenience. And, and so one of the things that had occurred to us is that in order to remain, remain relevant, in order for the library to be able to do what it is it needed to do, it needs to be able to serve the customers in a timely fashion and in a way that makes sense for that customer. So, so it's not, so one size can't fit all. Um, you have to be able to serve people in, in different ways. Um, and so the customer center transaction model, the idea was to, uh, instead of putting the staff in the center of the transaction and saying, how can we provide this service to an individual? The idea became, how do we put the, the customer in the center of the transaction and how do we provide the best service for, for that person? Um, so it's highly personalized. It's, it, it, it isn't one size uh, fit, fits all in something like this. And, and the most interesting thing about the customer-centered transaction model is that it's going to change even for the same customer. And so I, you know, I find myself doing this all the time, where um, I might go into uh, I might go into a restaurant or someplace like that, or you know, like a like a a place like a Starbucks, for example, and I'll want to chat with the barista and take my time and and you know, watch my coffee being made and and have that whole experience and and a lot of sort of high touch interaction, um, and that's one experience. Um, but then on the other hand, uh, I just want to run into Starbucks real fast, get my coffee, and get out as fast as possible. And I'm the same customer, but I'm, but I'm setting very different expectations and very different demands depending upon how much time I have at that given moment. And I think that's true of most of our customers. So in order to really um, create a customer-centered transaction model, what you have to do is you have to understand that there are going to be some people who want to run into your library, get their service as fast as possible, and get out as fast as possible. And frankly, if they never talk to a person while they're in the library, that's perfectly fine. However, <laughs> that very same person, when they come in the library the next week, might have a little bit more time. And for them, a great customer experience is going to be something like, you know, chat about their grandkids and finding, about, finding out what the next great book is to read and things like that. And so in order to provide both of those experiences, you have to do things like offer um, you know, speedy service, you know, things like self-pulling uh, self holds where people come in and pull their own holds and transactions. You have to be able to provide things like self-checkout machines and, and easy return systems and, and the ability for people to even pay their own fines and, and to serve themselves so that they can get in and out as quickly as possible. The other thing is, is that um, this goes way, way back. I actually saw a study, and I never can find the site for this, but um, there was a study that was done that says psychologically when people serve themselves, even if it takes longer, they feel like they're more efficient than when they're receiving service in, in, in many cases. Um, and, so, and so what that relates to is a good experience. Even if it took longer, the person thinks that they had a good experience. Um, now, now, of course, that's for a certain type of person. There's also other people who never see self-service as, as good service, but you have to be able to provide both. And so my point was is that you, you cannot have, you know, a fortress cert desk with seven people there waiting to, you know, chat with you about your grandkids and things like that. Um, and also, uh, and also have a, uh, the, 
the uh, provide the level of service that the person who wants to just come in and get the stuff and get back out. So so you have to do both. And so that's what we ended up doing. We ended up creating environments where people can can basically where they can serve themselves, um, or they can get. Um, you know, mediated service where you can um, where you can check out physical books or you can check out digital books, and understanding that that you're going to have both uh, at either time, just depending upon uh, what you are able to provide. I think that this model has been really successful. One of the metrics that we use is um, something called the Net Promoter Score, and so we actually evaluate um, the general satisfaction of our of our customers. Our net promoter score, Midcontinent's net promoter score right now is 91. Um, if I, my understanding is Apple's net promoter score is like 82. And you know that, you know, people use Apple, it's like a religion. I mean, you know, um, that I think Walmart's net promoter score, if I'm not mistaken, is like 40. And people who shop at Walmart understand why their net promoter <laughs> score is 40. So, so for us, it was really, so, I think what this what this is showing is that a model like the customer center transaction model, where we allow you to sort of choose your satisfaction, um, allows us to have this exceptionally high net promoter score. And, and and this is one of the dashboard metrics that, you know, John was talking about dashboard metrics before. Net promoter score is one of those that we look at in terms of determining if we're doing the right thing. Active card holders, households with active cards is another one that we look at. It, it's not how many cards did we issue. It's how many households actually have active cards that they've used in an amount of time, and and if we're not, you know, successful at um, making people use their cards, then we start doing things like sending gentle reminders. Hey, did you know you could do this? Oh, you're too busy to come to the library? Uh, have you tried downloading? Things like that to get people to reengage and, and become reactive. But but John's absolutely right. If you're not measuring it, it doesn't matter, and and if you're not measuring it, uh, you cannot move the needle. Yeah, and if I could get the piggyback on that uh, and, and go back to a conversation we are having before about, well, I were the CEO of the library world, and the first thing you look at is com competitive differentiation. Steve talks about focusing on having a, a, a customer service event that drive, is driven by the customer. Of course, what that's leading a lot of libraries to to, the, to this day is self-service models. Uh, more and more and more, and Denmark is an example of where they've taken it to the extreme, and you have no staff where it's all customer driven. And so, you know, so if you look at Google and Amazon and Netflix and the competition um, and what they're doing to libraries, the how are libraries going to respond? Uh, Self-service, uh, become more efficient, more effective, more productive. Yes, yes, and yes. However, that can't be all. Uh, so what? does differentiate libraries from Google, Amazon, and Netflix, and it's the face-to-face -face interaction. And so there's the paradox. Uh, in order for libraries to compete, they have to be streamlined. They have to go self-service. They have to have a customer-driven experience of what they want. And more and more, that is self-service. So we have to relook at this and say, well, what is the real strength of libraries? And the real strength of libraries is that face-to-face -face interaction. And we have to get to the point where we're not complacent, if you will, on sitting back and waiting for the customer to come to us. Uh, and Steve, I'm quoting Steve actually here, is so we have to go out and engage with the customer. We have to seek them out, and as Pike Speaks says, seek, engage, and transform. We can't just sit back and wait for them to come through the doors. We have to get outside our doors and engage the customer 
and show them what we can do and engage and do it and transform these communities. And the pyramid is a way, the, the intent of the pyramid is to create a conversation and a definition of what a healthy community is so libraries can identify where the gaps are in their community. Is it uh, homelessness? And certainly for downtown libraries, that is, that is a huge issue. Is it health and nutrition? Is it safety and security? Is it literacy? Is it, is it digital literacy? Is it uh, getting a job? Is it job skills? Um, is it uh, is my community so healthy that we can focus more on the creativity aspect of our community so that we can be all drawn together? Uh, that's what the pyramid is all about. And if we only if we only see the future of libraries as book distributors and self service, uh, then we will no longer be the kind of library that that you are today. So this the whole purpose our purpose of writing this book was to go on what I call the soft side of libraries. You have the hard side, which is the book distribution. But the soft side is the impact you guys have every, every, every day. And if you look at that pyramid, libraries are involved with every single one of those levels. This isn't something like I, we invented. I mean, you are involved with the homeless. You are involved with safety and security. Um, some of my library clients actually host neighborhood watch, watch groups. Uh, you, you obviously are involved with literacy and digital literacy job placement, you, you do all of this, but you have no means to say, number one, where is what is it that our community needs? Because we can typically just say, well, we're going to have a standard blueprint of what our community needs versus what do they actually need and true metrics telling them, telling us what they need and realigning your, your purpose, your strategic plan to what that, to the gaps in the pyramid of your community. And so that's really where Steve and I are ultimately going with this, is to create whole, whole new growth future for libraries by embracing what you do now, but nobody knows about it, unfortunately. Very few people actually know about a lot of the soft side services except those who actually receive those services. Right, and that leads to the next question I wanted to talk about when we had talked about marketing earlier. How do we let our community know that we're doing these things? Because we can do all these great things, but if nobody knows that we're doing them, in the past, I don't know that libraries have been that great <laughs> at marketing themselves. Um, so what are some things that libraries can do to better market themselves? My experience is that most libraries in the past, they're getting better and better, frankly. In the past five years, I've, I've seen a, a lot of improvement. But prior to that, marketing was hardly even on the, on the scope. Um, it just wasn't a focus point because librarians tend to be humble. They're a very humble group and they are uncomfortable bragging about themselves uh, and and that's a problem uh, libraries have to get out there and show what they do and uh, so I'll turn it over to Steve because he's, he's got a lot of experience in this yeah and and um, I I definitely do and I've got some really strong opinions about this because my experience is that is, is that most libraries like to talk about doing marketing but they're not really doing marketing they're doing publicity, and the publicity they're doing is really, really poor. Um, they tend to do things like, um, let's put up a sign that we're going to do a program. And where are we going to put that sign? In the library. So how do people know that we're having this program? Well, they have to come to the library to know that we're having this program. Well, how are you ever going to get a new audience if all you're doing is promoting by putting a sign in the library? Um, and, and so then you talk to the staff about that, and they go, okay, well, I've got an idea. Let's print bookmarks. And, and so then we end up printing more. So, so then we print bookmarks that we put in a pile 
you know, on the service counter in the library and still can't figure out why more people aren't coming. And, and, and so then you might actually get the gumption to say, okay, well, what we need to do is maybe, maybe broaden our distribution channel a little bit. So let's take our bookmarks and, and, and put them in a grocery store or something. And so what you end up doing, and we talk about this in the book, is the idea of just papering the town with bookmarks and signs, but you're still just kind of standing on a rooftop and shouting, hey, we've got something going on at the library. And, it's not, and, and what it is is it, it, it's promotion, it's publicity, but it's not targeted, it's not focused, it's not looking at target markets. And this, this is something I actually talked about at, at PLA uh, this last year in Philadelphia, is I think my the, uh, John is right that librarians are humble, but I actually think the the core of the problem is that librarians tend to be extremely egalitarian, especially public librarians, and so we want to make sure that we serve serve everybody. But actually, if you're doing marketing, what you want to do is you want to establish a target market, and 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 message to that market. And when you target market and you message to a market. Then, then you are automatically not messaging to other people. And, and that idea is something that's a little hard for some librarians to get around, public librarians in particular, to get around. That I'm going to tell some, something to someone and not tell it to someone else. Um, it's not being equal. It's not, being, uh, it's not providing equal access to, to everyone. And, and so, so that tends to be one of the things that happens. When people try to do marketing, they, they try to um, they try to tell you everything that's going on at the library. Uh, we had that problem here at Mid-Continent. One of our early attempts at doing things like press releases is um, our community programming department, or what was our community programming department back then, would put together a press release and send it to all the newspapers for all the programs that were going on in all the library district. And so remember, we've got 30 branches. We've got, we're about 1,400 square miles, so it can take you like, you know, two and a half hours to, if you live in one corner of our library district, it can take you two and a half hours to drive to the other corner of the library district. So why on earth would the newspaper <laughs> in the opposite corner of the, of the library district care about a program that you're having? Uh, and when, we, when you'd point that out, they would say, well, we've got to tell everybody because we've got to give everybody fair access. And, you know, so, so this is part of the problem. With, with marketing. So, so what I would suggest, and the exciting part is that a lot of the technology and a lot of the tools have progressed to a point that you can easily target markets. So we do that. We actually, we, we use Orange Boy and we use Savannah, um, which is the product within Orange Boy. And so Orange Boy actually helps us identify um, our, our customers, the library customers, based on the way they use the library. So, so we're not you know, we're, we, we are saying, you know, you, you are, for example, there's, there's a group that's called Bedtime Stories. And Bedtime Stories are adults, but they're adults that primary check, primarily check out children's materials. So these are pro most likely adults of small children is a bedtime story person. And so what will end up happening is we will send an email message, and, you know, we're going through a renovation process right now uh, at many, many of our libraries. And so we sent a targeted message to our bedtime story customers saying, you know, your library is about to be renovated. It'll be closed for the next, you know, eight weeks. During this time period, here is the next neighboring branch that has preschool story times. Because we know that it's a, the preschool story times are important to this market segment because of how they use our library. We're not going to send the here are the preschool story times message 
to, um, to another market segment, which is called page turners. Uh, page turners are people, uh, they're adults, who tend to read um, lots of adult books and tend to read them in physical format. Okay, so they're not, they're not digitarians. Digitarians are people who tend to read e-books and e-audio books, right? So, so the message that we would send to people about a branch closing and branch remodeling, if you're a page turner, is, you know, we're sorry, your branch is going to be closed. Here's, here's the steps for how to change your hold pickup location, because these people place a lot of holds because they like physical items. And, and here's where you, and here are the branches closest to you where you might want to change your holds pickup location while your branch is being renovated. So, I mean, the whole idea is that in this sort of information economy, people are drinking from an information fire hose. I mean, I don't know about Huber, but man, I get 250 email messages a day, and that's just email. I mean, I'm talking about text and voicemail and all that stuff. A hundred of them are from me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, I mean, so, so my whole issue on this is that there's so much noise out there that libraries do so many important things. You can't just say, we do everything, and eventually you'll figure out what we need. You have to target your message. You have to make sure that your message is, is um, resonating with the way the, these people actually live. And so we do that, and we do that through Savannah, and I think we've had a lot of success in doing that. We're actually going to be able to measure the, the extent of the success as, as these branches open and, and close and, and using these targeted closing messages is going to be um, extremely, extremely beneficial. But, but we, we work really hard on that. So, you know, we do our square one small business services. These are entrepreneurs who are trying to grow new businesses. You know, we go in there and we talk to those folks. We don't talk about story time. <laughs> you know, we, we, we don't talk about bestsellers. We don't talk about that. We talk, those people are hardcore business folks, and we talk about business. And I, I think that the sooner that libraries can start, um, start focusing their messages uh, with, the, with the programs that they do and then targeting the audiences, and, and there are opportunities to also target non-users who are of a similar audience. I, I know that Cengage uh, 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 Gale has a product uh, that, that, that can help target non-users for that particular purpose. And, and the sooner people begin to do that, I think the more success that we'll have in terms of uh, you know, getting through the wall of noise. And I, I think for me, this brings this conversation full circle back to the pyramid because for me, what's the most important part of, of what libraries need to know and understand is that they need to talk the language of those who fund them. Yeah. Uh, the people who fund them is dollars. They think in terms of dollars, uh, cost benefit. And libraries tend not to think in terms of cost benefit in terms of dollars. They will quote how many, how much they've circulated, how many people walked at the door, how many computer hours, so forth and so on. But they will not say this is the impact we have on the community. And that's what the whole point of the pyramid is, is not only to help define what a healthy community is, but to be able to create metrics to, def to measure each part of the, the, those, the level of the pyramid, but also to dollarize the impact your, your library is having on the community, uh, and then be able to market that. And so the pyramid is a marketing tool, frankly. Uh, uh, it, it's a means to, def to define for the community what a community is, define uh, how libraries are impacting it, and define in terms of dollars through the dashboard metrics 
of actually the impact. And my favorite is uh, third grade literacy rates and that uh, you can quickly calculate what percent of your third graders are at risk. And there are national statistics that will tell you that a certain percentage of those third graders will drop out of high school, at-risk third graders will drop out of high school. And then there's a percentage of how many of those who dropped out of high school will end up in jail. And so you can put a dollar value on a minimum wage job for someone who did graduate from high school, and you can put a dollar value on how much it costs per year to, to house someone in jail. So for every single at-risk third grader that you turn into a good reader, you can tell the community that we're saving this much money per person that we've in, per child that we've impacted. Of course, the future money, and I think the number's like thirty thousand a kid. Uh, so every at every at risk reader that you turn into a good reader, you're saving uh, thirty thousand dollars for the community in the future. And and the mo most amazing thing I've ever heard is that those who do strategic planning for prisons, on what prisons prison growth, what they're going to have to build is based on third grade literacy rates. That's what they base their, their future planning for prisons, is third grade literacy rates. And libraries are positioned perfectly to have the biggest, and they are, they have the biggest impact on third grade literacy rates other than the teachers. But the teachers are overwhelmed, so where are they gonna go? They go to the libraries. But do we market that? Do we, do we communicate that dollar impact? And you can do that for every single level of the pyramid. You can dollarize the impact you're having on your community uh, on every level of the pyramid. So for me, that's the dollarization of your value is the thing that will get the attention of those who fund you. And, and John's absolutely right on that. I mean, we, we use that all the time, the grade level reading, the uh, summer slide numbers, the things like that. But the, and, and the, the interesting thing is, is that you can and probably should take this to the dollars and cents, particularly when you're dealing with, with, with larger funding organizations. One of the, the advantages that Mid-Continent has is that we're an independent taxing and independent governing uh, political subdivision. So, so it's not like I have to go and convince a city manager to, to make sure to give me the money that I need for the library because, because we're independent governing and independent uh, and independently funded. But you do have to talk to people about the, about the importance and the purpose of the library. And talking to people in terms that make sense to them is something that, and it, and it is still all based on the pyramid, is something that is very, very important. So when I'm talking with a chamber of commerce or I'm talking with an EDC, um, while I do talk about things like grade level reading and summer slide and some of the other issues that are that are important for us, one of the ones that I will never get out of the room not talking about is the fact that our Square One Small Business Services helps launch 45 small businesses a year, and and we've got that number and we've got the, you know we've got the number validated and all of that. Well, if I'm sitting in a room for, full of small business people and business advocacy people, I really don't have to translate that beyond that point. I really don't. I mean, they get it. Launching 45 small businesses means something. Now, the number 45 is a small number. It's a lot smaller than like 50,000 database hits. But if I walk into a room of, of chamber of commerce types and I say, you know, we had 50,000 database hits for the Dun & Bradstreet database this last year, they have no idea what I'm talking about. If I tell them that we launched 45 small businesses, they're like, oh my gosh, I had no idea a library did that. And they understand the impact of it. So, uh, you know, uh, Part of it's talking to the right audience too. I mean, it, it's not that it's not that the biggest number matters. Nine million circulations a year doesn't matter, which 
that's what Midcontinent does. It's just a big number. What matters is, did we help prevent summer slide? Did we help prepare kids to, to enter kindergarten ready to, ready to learn? Did we help people reach third grade reading? And what is the impact of third grade reading? Because a lot of people don't get that. They just think it's an interesting you know, place marker. If you're in a business community, how many businesses did you help launch? How many businesses did you help write a business plan? Those, that audience understands the impact of that, even, even if you don't get as far as the dollarization. I think it's important. I agree with John. It, it's ultimately, that's the gold standard, and that's where you want to go. But even if you can't get that far, if you can begin to talk to people in their language so they understand the purpose and importance of the library, then, then um, well, then when you have to get a voter support, then it doesn't become a question. And, and, and that's what Midcontinent discovered. When we went before the voters in 2016, I, and we would go out on the stump and start talking to people about, please support our new levy um, uh, initiative, the question was not, um, do we still need libraries because everyone has a Kindle? That's what we thought we were going to have to be arguing with people about. That wasn't the, that, but that wasn't the discussion point. The discussion point became, um, how exactly are you going to, um, you know, what are you going to do with the new resources? How are you going to better serve the community? Because they already understood how we were serving their community because we were talking to them in their language. Again, I think it's important. Steve, Steve brings up a good point in that probably the hardest thing I have selling libraries on is this concept of dollarization. They're very uncomfortable with it. Uh, taking that last step of, okay, we had 45 uh, startup businesses, what's the dollar value of that? And, and what's interesting is it doesn't take a whole lot of research to look on the impact small businesses have on your community or, or, or your larger community. The data's there. The statistics are there. And so this brings full circle this conversation about research reference librarians in that their job has been eliminated in many ways uh, by Google. And I can tell you firsthand that at library after library after library that I've worked with, that the reference research librarians, some of our most valuable, educated, uh, well-paid staff members, are spending most of their time on a computer showing people how to log in on computer, log in on their email, or do social networking. And to me, that's a travesty. Uh, and with the budget constraints or the the pressures that we have, that's one of the first places that that, that, that they, they look at. At reducing costs, and uh, that's the last thing libraries need to do. Uh, they need to reinvest these reference research librarians into new services, and that's the, that's the trick of growth. Uh, the best organizations will re, will streamline and improve their their businesses, their operations, free up savings, and then reinvest that savings into new growth opportunities, new services for their for their uh, customers. And the reference research librarians are perfectly positioned to be these, this group that can go out and look at this data through the pyramid, do the statistical analysis and research to say, well, we had 45 startup businesses. What's the impact on startup businesses have on the community as a whole? And use that as part of your marketing materials in terms of, of, of dollars. So again, I, it's my hardest message. It's the hardest thing for libraries to grab. But you, I, I'm convinced that you have to take that next step. And dollarize it. Well, we're kind of talking about that concept a little bit now, but I want to wrap up um, talking about sustainability um, because if, if somebody has implemented lean library management, they are doing the customer centered transaction model, they're doing dashboard metrics, they're doing all these great things that you guys suggest. 
How do they keep that going? What, what are some factors they should be looking at to keep that long-term growth going? Sometimes we, going back to this whole concept of purpose, uh, and the reason you get, the reason librarians and staff get up the morning and go to work. Uh, it's interesting, we started this, this interview off with you asking Steve how he got into the library world. And in my workshops, I do the exact same thing. I ask the entire group to spend five minutes, 10 minutes writing down a piece of paper why they joined the library as a profession. And I have them share their stories. Uh, and it, and, it's, an, and it's, a, it's my favorite part of my workshops. Um, but then I follow that question up with what made you stay with libraries? Because often the why we got into libraries, the answer is my mom made me do it or something like that. <laughs> but the real core question is uh, why did you stay? And the reason they stayed is because they, they are making a difference in the community and they're making a difference in individual people's lives. And that's why they get up in the morning. And so for me, to pull this all together, what we measure often is circulation and so forth and so on, but it has nothing to do with why librarians and their staff get up in the morning and go to work. And so we, Steve and I believe strongly that we need to realign ourselves with, with what their purpose is, why they get up and go to work. And that's a lot of what this pyramid talks about. Uh, so the future to me is, is aligning your metrics with what, what motivates your people. And it's not circulation. Um, it is making a difference in the community. And I'll ask them to tell stories, and, and, and uh, some of them will bring you to tears. I mean, there are amazing stories out there, but they're not getting communicated, and they're not getting out to the public uh, of how valuable and what a difference librarians make. Yeah, it, it is one of our favorite passions because one of the things that, uh, because the easiest things to measure, circulation, door count, things like that, are the things that are least meaningful in terms of telling what is the difference you're making in your library and the difference you're making your, in your community. I mean, we do this all the time. And in terms of sustainability, I think this is one of the things that we do focus upon, which is, um, you know, we bring together the community and, and we do we do these community needs assessments groups. Uh, Mid Continent does, and and this this is part of the sustainability model. So the idea is that you, it's not a focus group. You don't just bring 20 random people into the room and say what does the library need to do, and those 20 people will always say buy more books because that's what they think they're supposed to say. What you do in a community needs analysis is you bring in like one superintendent or, or one representative of K-12 education. And you bring in one member from the faith community. And you bring in a small business owner. And you bring in somebody from, from finance. And, and you, begin to, um, you begin to talk about things like, um, what is what is our ideal community? Let's visualize our ideal community. And I mean, you know, they always want to talk about libraries, but you know, you slap them on the wrist and you say, no, 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 we're not talking about the ideal library. Let's talk about the ideal community. And you begin to identify issues. You begin to identify places where there's holes in your pyramid. And and um, and after about 45 minutes or so, you begin 45 minutes, 90 minutes, you begin to get a really clear picture. What is the ideal community? And once you get that, then you stop and say, okay, now, what, is, what can the library do to help us reach the ideal community? What is the right library-appropriate response for us to reach 
um, that ideal community? And those answers become very different because, because when you're beginning to talk about, okay, we have an issue with, with food security, the answer is not going to be buy more books. It can't be buy more books. And when you begin to think about what is the library appropriate response to that, then you can come up with all kinds of interesting ideas and directions. And so, so part of it is by engaging in these community needs assessments, which we do these um, as well as customer satisfaction surveys and things like this, we do these all the time. We're constantly gathering information about our community so we can be nimble and we can move to where our community needs us the most. And, and to me, that's the way that you, say, that, that you stay relevant and the way that you um, stay sustainable. Because if you're, if you're doing what, what the library needs to do to assure that the community is in its best place, then you don't get sucked into traps of you know, doing legacy uh, services just because we've always done it that way. Because sometimes those legacy services aren't going to make your community a stronger place. Yeah, and, and what excites us, Steve and I, is I mean, we, we wrote this book with the hope to change the conversation, that we would, we would provide a framework of, uh, of, with the pyramid so that when we talked about a healthy, transformed community and the library's impact on it, we now had a, 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 a basis to have the conversation, which I'm not sure we had before. And so that's what we're offering out to the library community is that we think we have a basis to begin the conversation. And, and it's going to take a while. There's no doubt about it. But we're, what excites us is that there, there, it is happening out there. There are a number of libraries who are embracing this purpose-based library concept, embracing the pyramid, and, and basing their strategic plan on it. Um, you know, one of the best early adopters was was uh, Largo Public Library with the uh, is it Case is it Casey McPhee, Steve? Uh, yeah, like, yeah, Casey McPhee from Largo. Uh huh. Yeah, and you you've got a number of other examples of libraries that are yeah yeah embracing. yeah J Jason two of my favorite Jason Leduc from Dothan, Alabama and Matt Poland from Russell in Connecticut. Both of them contacted me about essentially getting classroom copies of purpose-based library so their board could read it, sort of have a framework from which to talk about, and, and then build their new strategic plan around that, understanding that the purpose of the library is not going to be to check out more books, or it's not necessarily going to be to install a makerspace. Could be. It could be to install a makerspace if that's what your community needs. But you have to ask those questions first. What is the purpose of the library? What does our community need? Where are there holes and cracks in our pyramid? And if we're not fixing those things, then it doesn't necessarily make sense to buy a 3D printer. And, and you know, Matt and, and Jason kind of got that. And, and so they asked us to, you know, they asked if I, you know, what I thought about that. And I said, I think, thought that'd be a great idea. And I wrote a letter, you know, and they, they had their group. Uh, copies. I know Miss, Misty Jones at San Diego uh, Public. She and I talk about purpose-based library all the time, and how she can be working with it. And the two, the two librarians at uh, Los Angeles, Sky and John, and I talk about stuff. And Michael Lambert, um, at the, he's the acting director at San Francisco Public Library right now. He is a huge fan of Lean. I mean, he he is constantly talking about Lean, and and how you take Lean and then migrate it into, into purpose-based library. So, I mean, there's a, it seems like every time I go to some meeting, uh, some director is talking to me um, about some way that they're using purpose-based library. And, and frankly, that's kind of cool, because that, that, that does mean that John and I met our ultimate goal, which our ultimate goal was 
to kind of give the profession a pep talk and get them to begin to start thinking about this in a totally different way. Yeah, and, and to summarize all of this, uh, libraries do have to get lean. They have to compete. They have to streamline their business processes. And the more they, they improve their customer service, they will free up. They will get savings. They will free up costs. But the big message is that you should reinvest those savings. Don't reduce the staff. Reinvest your best staff into new services with the pyramid in mind, letting you know where you can make the most impact on your community. And finally, dollarize that. Show the community the impact you're having on it. And if that happens, then uh, hopefully we won't end up the Denmark model with uh, a whole bunch of uh, staffless libraries that are simply book warehouses. Right. So, um, again, the book is called The Purpose-Based Library. And if listeners want to learn more about the book, how can they get in touch with you guys? Call me. <laughs> it's 918-691-7864. I'd be happy to, uh, to talk with you. Uh, or my email address, jhaconsults at gmail.com. I'm, I'm available and open to anyone and everyone. So of course, you can buy the book at ALA bookstore. <laughs> and Steve, Steve T., I want to tell you, I, I, we really appreciate this opportunity to, to join your, your podcast because uh, Steve and I are passionate about getting this message out because we, we, we're convinced and believe in the experience is telling us that it's, it's, a, it's the right path uh, to, to help libraries um, not only survive but, but to grow. I hope everybody learns more about it from here and does get a copy of the book and um, works with you guys if they can. Go see you at conferences if you're there and learn more about this because it is a great concept that I think it's it's really it is the way forward for libraries to embrace and survive in the 21st century. So. Very much. Well, uh, yeah, the, the book itself is written. Uh, I mean, you know, John and I shared a lot of the process on this, and it's written in a way that uh, you know I think it's a pretty easy read. You don't have to be an academic. You don't need to be a professional librarian. But I think at the end, you you do feel like, yeah, there is a purpose for what I'm doing. There's a reason for me to get up in the morning and to do my work and to help change and make my community a better place. And I think you can walk away from that sort of with a with a pep talk, but also a new focus. Uh, in librarianship. So, uh, so yeah, John's right. It's available at ALA. You can find it on Amazon. You can find it a hundred different places at this particular point in time. And um, I'm not impossible to find. I'm the library director at Midcontinent Public Library. Um, and so if you're in the library community, you should be pretty easy to find me. All right, John, Steve, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Steve. Thanks a lot. Circulating Ideas is produced by Steve Thomas in the suburbs of Atlanta. Views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect those of my place or work or the place of work of guests. For past interviews, visit circulatingideas.com and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or your podcast app of choice. And help others find the show by leaving a rating or a review. You can follow the show on Twitter at CircIdeas or like the show's Facebook page. Music is by Pamela Klicka. Thanks for listening and keep circulating your ideas. Thanks again to Mometrics Test Preparation for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. To get 10% off your first purchase and a free demo, visit goelibrary.com and use that promo code podcast. That's goelibrary.com, promo code podcast.